You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 38. the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we're talking with researcher Kristen Ruig. Kristen, along with her colleagues at UCLA's Institute for the Environment and Sustainability, has developed a new genetic technique for assessing the migratory connectivity of bird populations. Now, I know that this sounds highly technical, But this study has dramatic implications for migratory bird research all across the globe. Not only will this technique allow us to learn more about when and where birds migrate to, but it will help us learn how migratory birds are being impacted by climate change. The first step in the process is collecting genetic material in the form of blood samples from breeding bird populations of a particular species all across their breeding range. The result of this first stage is the development of a genetic map, which Kristen has dubbed the genoscape for a species. Once this genoscape has been built, feather samples that are collected anywhere on the wintering grounds or along the migratory route can be traced back to the geographic location of that individual bird's breeding population. So get ready for an in-depth conversation about bird genetics and the scientific implications of this new genoscape technique. All right, I'm here with Kristen Rueg, who is an assistant adjunct professor at UCLA's Institute for the Environment and Sustainability. How are you doing, Kristen? I'm great. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks a lot for coming on the show today. Excellent. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, you bet. Um, so, Kristen, you, you have helped develop a new approach towards studying bird species that uses genetics to identify specific breeding populations. Hopefully I got that <laughs> that brief summary of your, uh, of your work correct. Um, so, I mean, the, the first thing I want to, to do here is just get um, a, a basic explanation of this, pro- this approach. How does it work? So the basic approach is that we scan the genome of the bird species that we're interested in, and we identify um, single base pair changes in the DNA. So DNA is made up of A's, C's, T's, and G's. We identify um, single base pair changes uh, that are diagnostic or representative of particular populations across the breeding range. And then once we've identified which regions of the genome differ on a population-by-population basis. We develop rapid assays that can target these regions, and and we can then screen individuals just using a single uh, feather and the DNA in a feather and uh, type that individual back to the population of origin. That's sort of the roughed, you know, backdrop of what we're doing. I just want to make sure that, that, that I'm understanding this correctly. So you're basically taking a piece of that DNA sequence and finding a piece of it that's unique to a population of an animal within a specific geographic region, right? Exactly. Only it's even more specific than that in that we are, you know, we're scanning a huge part of the whole genome and we're identifying 
not just a piece, but even just a single uh, base pair or a single nucleotide. So a single, in, in, for example, in one population at that particular spot in the genome, it might have a, a, a what we call a genotype of A. Um, and in the other one, in another population, which is across in a different part of the range, it might be the genotype T. And so then we can um, rapidly screen for just uh, that location and look at whether the individual is an A or a T, and that would give us a, a hint into um, which population that bird is from. I guess in order to do this, the first step would be you'd have to actually collect genetic material all across the range of a species, right? That's right. So we do this in sort of two phases. The first um, phase we refer to as a genome scan and um, developing what we call a genoscape, which is a map of how patterns of genetic variation change across the range in any particular species. Um, and then once we've identified um, sort of the, the genetic base map and develop this, this genoscape of changes in genotypes across the range, we can then go back and um, rapidly screen individuals from anywhere else across the migratory cycle, whether it's wintering, breeding, or along the migratory route, and we can identify birds back to their population of origin. <laughs> I love that term you use, the genoscape. That's really cool. Um, <laughs> we're, I'm glad you like it because we're calling the next iteration of the whole project the Bird Genoscape Project because I think it really does a nice job of kind of illustrating in words what we're hoping to do. So basically you're, you're able to take a sample, which all it has to be is a feather, right? right. Um, uh, from uh, an individual bird from a, a population at any point on the migratory path or in the wintering grounds and then you can fit you, then you can analyze that sample and learn where that bird um where that bird breeds or where it was raised is that where it breeds yeah where it breeds exactly okay. that's a really important um point and often i think a source of confusion over the way that the the these genetic markers work um but yeah, that's crucial. So what we get with the with the genetics is, you know, um, a map of which populations uh, with the, of the different breeding populations, and so then our markers identify individuals back to that breeding population. Gotcha. So you can't do it in reverse. You can't take a sample uh, in the breeding range and figure out where they're wintering. No, not with the genetics. Yeah, because if you think about it. Um, the, the genes are mixing when birds are mating, right? And so the the patterns of genetic variation are going to build up on the breeding grounds because that's where genes are either mixing or not mixing. If everybody is mixing with everybody else on the breeding grounds, you're never going to have, you know, pop population specific genetic markers. And so these genetic markers build up as a result of sort of um, patterns of mating and um, who's breeding with who. That's just to sort of to describe why the markers work the way they do. So it sounds like for the, the first step um, in is in, in sort of building this genoscape, um, you're need, you need to collect samples from, you know, all across the breeding range. But then the, the next step um, you would have to travel to the, the wintering range for, for a particular species to collect those samples, right? 
Technically, yes. The the nice thing about this project is we have so many fantastic collaborators <laughs> that are, you know, don't have the genomics expertise, but are on the ground field biologists. And so we have this wonderful, it's one of my favorite parts about the project is that we get to work with people all over the, you know, the Western Hemisphere, really, um, who are on the ground collecting samples in um, different parts of the range. And then we can, we can screen the samples they collect at our facility at UCLA. Right. Gotcha. All you need is a feather, right? So anybody who's already studying that species could just very easily <laughs> sort of pluck a little feather and send it to you and you guys could analyze it at your lab, right? That's right. And in fact, um, I think it's a good point, which just to introduce. So the, uh, I came upon this project as a population geneticist, and I have been working in collaboration with a UCLA professor, Tom Smith, who set up a collaboration with bird banding stations all over the Western Hemisphere um, that are organized through an organization called the Institute for Bird Populations. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they um, operate out of Point Reyes, California. And anyway, they're a network of, of banding stations um, between through their network and then other banding partners. Tom Smith has been able to collate a, a feather collection of over 180,000 feathers from roughly 30 species of migratory bird. And so that's sort of how the project originated is um, Tom and I were talking and he said, gosh, you know, I wonder if there's something we can do about developing methods where we could utilize all the information in the feathers. And we've kind of put our heads together and that's how we came up, you know, with the bird genescape project. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your scientific background and, uh, you know, what sort of steps led up to that that point where um, you had this idea to uh, look at the genetics of bird populations to figure out um, all this information. I mean, you know, I was interested in college, I guess, in conservation biology and wanted and wanted to do graduate work, but I also wanted to travel around the world. So studying migratory birds was just sort of like a perfect fit for me in that regard because <laughs> I traveled that uh, to, you know, I traveled to collect samples at that point and um, on the wintering grounds and breeding grounds. And it was, it kind of was uh, double, double good for me. But um, Tom and I actually was a master student of Tom Smith's um, way back when he originally had this idea. So he's been collecting feather samples for over 20 years now in collaboration with all the different sampling partners. And um, I was a master student of his at sort of the start of the project, way about a decade and a half before the technology to actually do this was available. And so Tom and I, you know, as a student of his, I did some other interesting work that ended up leading down more of an evolutionary biology trajectory. I did my PhD at Berkeley, more in pure evolutionary biology kind of field, and then just revisited it as the sort of genomics was revolutionizing evolution and conservation biology. Um, and I revisited it basically in that conversation that I already told you about where Tom and I had lunch one day and we just thought, you know, now is the time. Now is the time to tackle that question that we were trying to tackle when I was a master's student in your lab, but we just didn't have the methodology at hand. 
this whole project really revolves around the development of the technology that allows you to to build this uh, this genescape, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, what's happened in the last you know five or ten years? I mean, what what um, how, how has this technology developed to a point where you're now able to use it to answer these questions? Yeah, so the main thing that's happened is the revolution in sequencing technology. So, for example, when I was a master's student in Tom Smith's lab, it took probably two years and a lot of my effort to see, to sequence, I'd say, about a thousand base pairs of, of, of sequence um, from, you know, 200 individuals. Um, now, um, there was a huge push during the time, probably that I was a master's student, which was early 2000 in, um, the, the human genome project and this human genome project just revolutionized the way that we, we all do science basically. I mean, because it provided tools that can be used to sequence, you know, billions of base pairs, um, of sequence from an individual in you know the same amount of time that it used to take us to sequence a thousand base pairs and so you know for the same cost we're now able to sequence the entire genome um that that when i was a master's student it would have cost in time and effort and resources to sequence a thousand base pairs so it's just the orders of magnitude uh, more data that we have at our fingertips Hmm, amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really, it's, I mean, I'm continually amazed when these data sets come back and just how huge they are. Um, I think, you know, one thing that we often talk about now is that the limiting factor is no longer data. And I think many fields are finding this, but with computing technology and the tools that we have at hand, really the limiting uh, factors, ha having the expertise and people on hand to process the data. That's the, that's the hard part. And computers large enough to, to run the process. Right, right. Yeah. Wow, fascinating. <laughs> I, I want to hear about the Wilson's warbler. Um, so this is the, the first species that um, you, you sort of tested this, this, new, uh, uh, this new genetic approach with. Um, I, I guess maybe you can start off by just telling me, you know, why the Wilson's warbler? Why, was, why did you choose that species? So let's see, the Wilson's warbler we chose a, as like a first species because it would provide a nice proof of concept um, for how the methodology works. And it was a, a good proof of concept species for a number of different reasons. One was that we had previous, previous data on the Wilson's warbler. So people had tried to develop, you know, they didn't call it a genoscape, but, the, but that's essentially what it was, they tried to develop a genoscape before using other kinds of markers, like I was telling you about um, before, you know, sequencing just a small fragment of the genome um, and hoping that that would provide enough information. Um, and so we had sort of a backdrop and a baseline data set on which to determine how well, how much better we would do using a genomic approach. Um, that and we also um, had a really nice sample size and a bunch of wonderful collaborators that really kind of demonstrated the utility of the methodology in a way that, um, you know, was very powerful. Um, so 
what I, I mean by that is we had not only samples, you know, thousands of samples from across the breeding range to fill out our genoscape and understand how patterns of variation changed across the breeding grounds, but we had thousands of samples um, from the migratory and the wintering period um, collected through collaborators and uh, researchers at um, the Institute for Environment and Sustainability. And then uh, in addition to that, we had an, a really neat collaboration with uh, a PhD student and her advisor at um, uh, University of Southern Mississippi who had collected seven, uh, somewhere between seven and 900 samples from a single migratory stopover point. So we were able to not only look at patterns of um, change in across geographic space, but also across time. And to me, that was one of the things that made the study just so exciting to just to be able to see how birds are moving through both time and space. You're trying to gain information on how birds move through time and space. Um, I mean, I, I guess I kind of want to boil that down to, you know, some more specific ideas. What specific questions were you hoping to answer uh, about sort of the natural history of the Wilson's warbler through this research? Yeah, so we were interested in knowing, um, you know, do particular populations of Wilson's warbler, um, it, you know, do they do they migrate along um, specific migratory pathways and winter in very restricted geographic distributions on the wintering grounds, or and that's what we would call strong connectivity. So strong connections between breeding and a particular wintering area? Or is it the case that Wilson's warblers from one breeding population spread out along the different migratory pathways and winter in sort of disparate wintering grounds? Um, and those are important questions because they have each, either one is gonna have really strong implications for how you manage that species and how you understand um, patterns of population change um, that, you, that we're seeing on, on across the range, but um, in this case, um, on, the, on the breeding grounds. So there's, you know, uh, demographic data showing that within the Wilson's warbler in particular, you have this patchy distribution of population declines and increases. And this is mostly based on, um, you know, some of the best available census data that we have is through something called the breeding bird survey data, where people go out and take um, a census of breeding birds every year. And it's been a, a, a very long term um, uh, project. So we have an idea of how populations are changing through time. And so through this data set, we can see that, the, that some populations seem to be increasing and others are decreasing, but we don't know why. And in order to study why that might be, we, we really have to know, you know, where are they going on the wintering grounds? Um, and if it turns out that the population that is declining, for example, in the Wilson's warbler, one of the most precipitously declining populations is from the Sierra Nevada. And it turns out that the Sierra Nevada population has a very strong connection to wintering areas in southern Baja and western Mexico. So that having that information really changes, you know, everything in terms of what might be the factors that might be influencing the population declines that we're seeing in that Sierra Nevada population. We know to look 
specifically at what's not only going on in the Sierras, but what's going on along the Western Flyway, as well as what's going on in Western Mexico and Southern Baja, where these particular populations are wintering. Gotcha. So it sounds like there, it sounds like you did find a strong connectivity, at least with this specific population, um, you know, that breeds in the Sierra Nevada, um, winters in this, you know, specific area uh, in, in Baja. Um, I mean, is this the case uh, for uh, sort of across the board with this species? Um, no, that's what's so interesting is actually um, there's some, we find some evidence of strong connections um, and then some evidence of of populations that seem to have a more are more dispersed on the wintering grounds. For example, there's a boreal forest, um, a genetically distinct group that's found primarily um, in the boreal forest region of Canada, which is a very broad region. So I guess it's not surprising that this sort of large breeding population also has um, a large distribution on the wintering grounds, but it's found in almost every one of our wintering sites, except for, um, sort of the, the Western region, which is kind of fascinating. So I'm not sure what the difference is there. Um, but yeah, that's for the next person's PhD or master's degree. <laughs> I feel like most people would be surprised to learn how little we actually know about the natural history of many bird species. It's been really difficult um, to connect these the, the breeding ranges and the wintering ranges for migratory songbirds. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess I'm wondering, like, why has it been so difficult to to answer this and some of these other basic natural history qu- questions up until this point? Yeah, I mean, it's really a matter of just not having the technology. I mean, this is the, where migratory birds go um, has been a question that's, you know, fascinated humans ever since they started noticing that birds might be leaving and going somewhere, you know, for for particular parts of the annual cycle. And, you know, I, I think it was Audubon originally who tied like a, a little piece of string on a bird's uh, leg to, to see if that bird, same bird would return um, the next year. And, you know, that was sort of the original origins in the U.S. anyway of the bird banding program. And then, you know, the, the, tech, the, the technology that followed that was the putting on of metal leg bands or in Europe they call them rings. And that's been a, just a massive Herculean effort to, to track and monitor and understand these migration patterns. But it's just been very, very hard for small pastorines because the return rates are so low. They're, you know, I, I'd have to look on the, the, the website to get the latest numbers, but I think they're like 0.05% for small-bodied pastorines. So, you know, you put on... 300,000 tags and you get back maybe 20. (laughs) So, right. So it's just not a lot. I mean, and that's over a 20 year period. So it's really been in the last decade. I mean, science is transforming in so many different ways. And this, and I mean, the bird migration, the genetics is one, the genomics is one. And then, you know, in tracking technology is just also another field that's currently being revolutionized. And so, you know, now you can, you can not only do the sort of population-specific tracking with the genetics, but there's also methodologies where you can put on, you know, GPS devices and um, what they call geolocators 
um, to, to understand these patterns. So, I mean, it's really just a ma matter of the fact that the tools and the technology has gotten sophisticated enough that we can start answering these questions that have always been a huge mystery. So n now that you've completed this research on the Wilson's Warbler, um, you've s sort of proven the effectiveness of this uh, genoscape technique. Uh, what, what comes next? Now we're hoping to, you know, um, roll it out and do this on a lot of different species. So we can not only understand the Wilson's Warbler, but we can understand population-specific migration patterns in many different species, and in particular species where there might be a particular conservation concern. And so, um, you know, where, for example, one of the uh, uh, one of the species that we're interested in in doing this sort of work on, building a genoscape for, is the willow flycatcher. And the willow flycatcher the, uh, is an interesting one. It, it's um, it has a subspecies within the species called the southwestern willow flycatcher, which is on the endangered species list at the moment. But there's a petition right now for delisting uh, the southwestern willow flycatcher. And so we're really looking forward to getting a better understanding of, you know, the distinctiveness of the southwestern willow flycatcher relative to other populations and whether there are any uh, population-specific migration patterns for the southwestern willow flycatcher, which could potentially inform this process of, you know, whether or not it should receive special protection. So at, at what stage in development are these uh, th these new research projects looking at um, the, the genoscapes for, for other species? Where, sort of, at, at what stage are you at in that process? So we have had great success with identifying collaborators, um, which is always um, one of the fun parts for me. So people that, again, have been working on, for example, willow flycatchers. Another one is yellow warblers. Um, and we're trying to identify a couple of water bird species to extend this out to, as well as some, a, ver a variety of raptors. So we've basically been building a a network of partners of the people that have the samples that are interested in utilizing our expertise to develop the genoscapes and have a variety of different reasons why they might want these genoscapes to inform, you know, their projects or the way they manage these species. So we've identified a lot of, of, of partners or potential partners, and we're in the process of trying to, to do the fundraising, um, some of some for some of the species we already have some of the funds um, to get started, and um, we're actually starting to to um, to sequence the genome. And for others, we're still trying to identify ways to to do the fundraising or identify funds. <laughs> we're getting going on the fundraising and hoping that people will fund it. <laughs> So I, I was first introduced to, uh, to to this research through some colleagues of mine who were involved in researching uh, the American kestrel. Was the kestrel one of those species that you had sort of targeted from the outset? Yes. Yeah, so um, I gave a talk at the AOU, which is the American Ornithological Union meeting last summer. Very excited about all of our new breakthroughs. And I guess I convinced, I was convincing in how exciting it was because there was a, 
professor by the name of Julie Heath, who was in the audience, and she got super jazzed. Julie's been studying kestrel biology for the majority of her career, I believe, um, and she's a professor at Boise State University. So she um, invited me out to give a talk at Boise State, which I, which I really enjoyed doing, and then basically, you know, pitched the idea of like, hey, how could we do this on kestrels, and if so, you know, how would it work? And so we just started brainstorming and both agreed that kestrels would be a fantastic species in which to do this sort of um, work on because, you know, Julie has a network of people that she could use to get the samples that we would need. And kestrels have a variety of different, you know, uh, population trajectories, just like the Wilson's warbler, where some there's been some suggestion of population declines in kestrels, and it's really unclear why that might be. And this connectivity um, piece is really a missing, a real missing piece. So you know, it just sort of had all of the components that would make a project of this scale and the you know the genetic information really, really um, useful. So. Gotcha. Yeah, you know, it seems to me like there must be lots of researchers out there that that are you know that that would have an interest in using uh, this this genescape technique to uh, gain more information about um, about the species they're working with. Uh, I mean, have have other folks uh, approached you in, in in a similar way? Yeah, it, yeah, that's been one of the really fun things. I mean. Um, I'm hopefully somebody listening to this will get excited and contact me and there'll be even more. But at the moment there's, you know, I do get um, requests, you know, probably very regularly. Um, And it's just a matter of, you know, putting the project together and um, our main, again, our main limit is really just being able to have the funding to make it happen. So uh, kind of taking a step back here and thinking big picture, what what kind of potential have you unlocked here through this research? I mean, what what where do you envision uh, sort of the state of this research being in five or ten years? Um, yeah, I think that it has true. I I mean, I might be biased, but I think it has tremendous potential. <laughs> in that, you know, if you think about all of the effort, for example, that went into bird banding on a on a worldwide scale, and you you think that you know for most in most cases, you put on, you, you capture a bird, you put on a metal leg band. And in terms of long distance recaptures for small body passerines, you get back 30 out of every 300,000 birds. If you compare that with this approach where um, you might not get very specific movement patterns for that, you would need a GPS device, but you will get information from every single bird that you handle every single one as long as you can pull a feather which is a fairly non-invasive way of doing um, the research of of collecting genetic material um, you can get information about which population that bird is from and that can be tremendously useful and even at the spatial scale in my opinion that is maybe even most useful for uh, from a management and conservation perspective because it's really you know, oftentimes we're managing populations, not individuals. And so being able to, for every single individual, identify a, a, a population um, at the spatial scale that's important for management 
um, I think is is incredibly valuable. You're envisioning that this uh, this will be sort of a universal thing for for all bird species, you know, uh, as universal as you know this system that that was created for for banding um, birds, putting these you know uniquely numbered. Um, aluminum leg bands on on songbirds. It would be my dream that you know at every at every monitoring station, people will see the utility of the genetic data, and that it will become standard practice to at least for a subset of the individuals, you know, in a way that's not detrimental to the birds. Um, you collect um, genetic material, and that that's stored and cataloged, you know, for, for future use or for being able to do these population IDs, depending on what the, the project and the interest of the monitoring station is. We all know that climate change presents this, this great sort of looming threat to all species of wildlife, right? Uh, but, but birds in particular and, and migrating birds, there's already been lots and lots of research out there showing that that this is changing the way birds migrate, right? Right. Um, so the research you're doing has this uh, in- inherent ability to sort of tease out a lot of these details of how these migratory routes are shifting um, as climate changes. So I guess what I'm wondering is, I mean, do you feel, you, you must feel a lot of pressure to get this, uh, uh, this, this large scale project, you know, up and going and to be, co- you know, sort of, uh, collecting the, these gene escapes for as many species as possible, um, you know, as this sort of threat of uh, climate change sort of looms over us. Definitely. Maybe you've articulated just why I'm so stressed out all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think that um, in terms of, of the utility of the methodology for understanding climate change, that there's two different ways, and you kind of alluded to them in the question. Um, the first one is that um, sort of going back to something I said earlier in the interview, which is that, you know, populations across the range are changing at different rates and the, and the declines that we see are often patchily distributed. And so being able to have the population specific connectivity information about where those populations are spending the rest of the annual cycle allows us to understand how, you know, and climate change is affecting different regions differently. In some cases, places are getting warmer. In some places, they're getting wetter or drier. And so this is having kind of a also a patchy effect on, um, you know, on, on the landscape and where birds spend their time. And so being able to use the connectivity information to tease out how climate change may be affecting populations on a, on a region by region basis is sort of one aspect. And then the second component is using it as a method for, you know, tracking where different populations are, are migrating and how those migration patterns may be shifting. So for example, just to kind of further illustrate that if you run a banding station in the Rocky mountains and you have a sample of 40 Wilson's warblers that you collected during the breeding season of 2000. And I screen those and I tell you every bird that migrated through in 2000 was headed to the Alberta, you know, breeding population of Wilson's warblers. And then 20 years later, 
you had another sample of migratory birds or of Wilson's warblers migrating through and you had me screen those and we noticed that lo and behold everybody now that migrates through your station is going to an entirely separate breeding range that also may have been influenced you know by climate change like so we can detect these shifts in who's migrating through um, across the time series and um and that and that information can be used to sort of inform, you know, how climate may be shifting migration patterns. Gotcha. So you brought up a really interesting point there, which is that, you know, you mentioned early on in this conversation um, that your collaborator on this this project, uh, Tom Smith, ha- has sort of, sort of set up this system to collect uh, feather samples. 20 years ago, right? So uh, I guess my question for you is, I mean, can you use all of those old samples to look at what's been happening over the past 20 years? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and that is something that we're hoping um, to do. And, the, you know, on top of Tom Smith's collection, which spans, you know, a 20, 25-year time series, there are also incredibly valuable samples in museums around the world that you can use to look at how patterns have shifted over hundreds of years. And so now another one of the advantages of the methodology is that we can, um, we can screen highly degraded DNA relatively easily, better than any method that I in my 20 years, you know, working in population genetics have ever seen. It's just because we're targeting such small, uh, fragments of the DNA. We don't need the DNA to be all intact um, like it would be in fresh materials. So we can really, we now have a tool at which we can, you know, utilize the DNA in older samples as well as um, newer ones and start looking at these potential changes and patterns over time. Awesome. That's super <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um so you've talked a lot about the importance of establishing collaborative relationships to collect all of this data over these sort of these large geographic areas. Um, and, you know, I, I know uh, specifically with the American Kestrel, um, a lot of the that data collection and collection of those samples um, is being done by citizen scientists. Um, and so I, I guess I'm just sort of wondering if that's something that that you've been thinking about, or if you had uh, you know any citizen science collaborators collaborators on the uh, the Wilson's Warbler project. I'm sort of you know trying to uh, uh, sort of figure out you know for folks listening out there you know who maybe aren't professional scientists, um, you know what opportunities there might be to to actually get involved in something like this. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And um, I think the potential for citizen science, you know, is like we haven't fully tapped into that angle. But I think it's also, again, one of the most exciting parts about this kind of research, because it it doesn't necessarily require a lot of expertise. So one of the ways that the like there's various levels of oftentimes where citizen scientists can get involved, oftentimes uh, Folks working at, at local banding stations will be um, citizen science that scientists that do get some level of training in order to do bird banding. But um, there's there's that angle. So volunteering or working or supporting like a local um, banding station 
would be one. Another way that we've talked about and uh, getting sort of having a, a larger reach about uh, connecting with folks that might be interested in citizen science is setting up networks that make it easier for folks that find birds that have hit windows or buildings. If you find a dead bird, um, we can use that's that's potentially not all for naught, right? We can we can use the information that's an extremely valuable specimen, and we can use the DNA to be able to, you know, maybe understand something about that population um, better. And so if you were to collect a carcass and, ha I mean, right now, the best place that you could turn a carcass into would be a local natural history museum. Um, but if we could somehow set up a network, we haven't done this yet, we've just talked about it, um, where we could work with other nonprofits to um, provide a method for folks to easily turn in carcasses and then get the genetic material to us, that might be one way to sort of broaden the scope of the whole project. So I think that it has a lot of really exciting possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that that's one of the things that, that is most fascinating to me about about this project is is the potential to sort of combine the efforts of citizen scientists with this really cutting edge technology um, to answer some really fascinating questions about uh, bird populations. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> well, thanks a lot for coming on the show, Kristen, and, and sharing this, this wealth of information with us. It's been a fascinating conversation. Well, thanks so much for inviting me. It was really fun. <laughs> awesome. You bet. I'm glad you had a good time. All right. That was our interview with UCLA researcher Kristen Ruick. I have to admit, I was a little lost after hearing Kristen's initial explanation of this new genoscape technique, but after a bit of clarification, I came to understand why this is such an important scientific development. I love how Kristen relates this new technique to the original method of assessing the migratory connectivity of birds, which was attaching uniquely numbered aluminum leg bands to each individual bird. Our documentary film, Bluebird Man, takes a close look at this practice of songbird banding and provides a few examples of the natural history information that this can provide. Kristen's research truly takes this idea to the next level uh, because all that is needed is a single tiny body feather from a bird to learn where that bird is breeding. I know that I'm very excited to see how this technique is implemented moving forward, and we'll be taking a closer look at how this new genoscape technique is being used to study one species in particular in the coming weeks. Next week, we'll be releasing a new video about the American kestrel, with a focus on how a kestrel genoscape will allow researchers to determine the cause behind this falcon's continent-wide decline. So stay tuned. Next week, we'll have a brand new Eyes on Conservation video highlighting this important kestrel research, as well as a podcast interview with Peregrine Fund biologist and director of the American Kestrel Partnership, Chris McClure. To learn more about Kristen's Genoscape research and find links to research papers, check out the show notes page for this episode at wildlensinc.org slash EOC38. That's wildlensinc.org slash EOC38. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors.